I, I don't, oh, by the way, I have something to show you. I, um, I totally forgot, uh, but it's in my bag. Would you bring my bag here, Livy? I promised you I'd show you this, and I got it. Yes, my Christmas gift. Uh, I knew I'd get it. Santa was very good to me this year. Uh, so this is Jasper. This is, this is the, the earthly stuff that heaven is made of. Um, a lot of it. So you can look at that later. Uh, this was a, uh, a special gift. So I'll put that there. But Jasper. We've talked a lot about Jasper in the walls of the New Jerusalem and the foundation, the first foundation stone. And uh, very exciting to think about. Uh, and a Jasper that is uh, in, in many ways transparent. So uh, it'll be fantastic uh, to see one day. But I wanted to show you that. Uh, the other thing I want to say is I don't have an outline for you to uh, take notes on. And, uh, and the reason for that is I couldn't quite outline what I was going to present. And so I thought, well, I'll just give it to you, and then you can take notes on your own. And uh, so you might need a piece of paper if you normally take notes. Uh, but I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 22. Uh, this morning, Revelation 22, the last uh, chapter in the book of Revelation. I've been praying about uh, the next series, and uh, I'm pleased to uh, let you know that I've begun to study in the book of Matthew. I think we'll look at the book of Matthew next. Um, I was drawn to that as we went through Christmas, so this would be a great book to go through. And uh, so begin to study in that. I don't think it's really possible for us to fully appreciate the magnitude of the problematic situation that the world is in today. And particularly, that is true, I think, uh, for those who are younger. Uh, those of us who are older have a broad enough perspective on world history to really be witnesses to a tremendous acceleration of change uh, that has taken place in our day. The younger generation, of course, have not seen this for themselves, although they may be uh, very much aware of it. Of course, people have always been fallen, and the Bible does record uh, that there is nothing new under the sun. And so the depravity of mankind has always existed, and it's always expressed itself in evil ways. However, we also know from Scripture that evil men will become worse and worse. And those of us who have lived for a half century or more are witnesses to the fact that the world really does have no ultimate solutions. At the 61st General Assembly of the United Nations in New York City, the Iranian president stood up and said, I emphatically declare that today's world, more than ever before, longs for just and righteous people with love for all humanity, and above all, longs for the perfect, righteous human being and the real Savior who has been promised to all peoples and who will establish justice, peace, and brotherhood on the planet. That's what we are waiting for. Now, the Bible, of course, speaks of exactly such an individual, uh, although not the one that the Iranian president is looking for. And the passage that we have turned to this morning includes the promise 
that his coming will be soon. I want to direct your attention now to verses 6 and 7. And this is right after the description of the New Jerusalem. We spent so much time studying. And here the angel who has revealed these things to John says to him in verse 6, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And then through the voice of the angel comes the words of the one who is coming. Uh, Verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now John is overwhelmed not only with what he has seen, but what he has heard to this point and the fact that the angel has spoken here as it were with the voice of Jesus Christ himself. So in verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And of course the angel restrains him here, verse 9, Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And then he gives this admonition that all the world must hear and obey when he says, worship God, what we've been doing this morning. Now, verse 6 speaks of the fact that the things being shown to this old apostle were things that must shortly take place. Yet it's very difficult for us to think of these things that Scripture describes here as being in the near future. It's difficult to really anticipate them with a delight that will turn our spirits away from the attractiveness of the things in this world. I mean, we are so earthbound, aren't we? You've probably observed that many times the Lord allows Christians to go through a period of long and sustained suffering before their home going. And uh, we don't know all of the reasons for that, but I think that sometimes it is simply so that those people will loosen their grip from everything on this earth. Uh, They'll let loose of even their dearest friends and family and everything else that they have held dear, that they have They've worked for over the decades until they come to the place where they're just pleading with the Lord just to take them. Like Keith Morton was a, uh, one example of that. And in the same way, their families, uh, you know, they, they loosen their hold and they're prepared for the Lord to take their loved one. And I think that that partially explains this prolonged period of decline and even great suffering towards the end of a believer's life. It was C.S. Lewis who described us like children fascinated with mud pies as a parallel uh, to the difficulty that God has in turning our attention heavenward. He said that it's like an adult who comes to these children who are playing in the mud and he says to them, hey, stand up, uh, wash your hands, i got something better for you, uh, let's all spend the day at the beach. But you know, these children have never been there before. And they can't begin to imagine 
the magnitude of the benefit of leaving their mud pies. In fact, they, you know, they can't uh, even understand terms associated with the beach. If you try to tell them, hey, we're going to go see the sand and the surf, and we're going to pick up seashells, well, they simply cannot identify with those kinds of terms. But of course, if you get them away from the mud and you give them a day at the seashore, well, they don't ever want to go back to their mud pies again. Well, that really is our difficulty. We are so taken with the assorted, uh, gaudy, uh, passing things of this world that the things that God describes in His book, by comparison, seem to have very little attractiveness to us. But the Scripture does assure us that those things are coming. And that they are coming soon. If you notice, best of all, in verse 7, the Lord Himself is coming. He says, I am coming quickly. Now, look down ahead, if you will, to verse 12, where you have the same words, Behold, I am coming quickly. And then drop down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Have you noticed that in the last chapter of your Bible, it concludes with three promises that He is coming quickly. They just poured in, one right after the other. So that you got repetition and more repetition. Now, what would that have meant then to the man who penned this book? Uh, he's got to be in his late 80s by now, even in his uh, early 90s. And he was there when the Lord Himself instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. So he heard the Lord say, uh, do this in remembrance of me, and when you do it, you are proclaiming my death until I come. Uh, John was also on the beach that day when our Lord rose from the dead and then predicted the future for Peter. Remember that? Remember that Peter kind of glanced sideways at John. And then he said, well, what about this guy? And the Lord said, and he said this in John's hearing, well, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So what do you think John took away from that kind of a comment? Uh, I mean, he's now the last of the apostles. He's stuck on this island. Uh, and then he gets this full revelation. And as he uh, concludes it, the Lord says three times, hey, I'm coming quickly. So what do you think John was expecting? Well, we know that he had thoughts about it because through inspiration, when he wrote his first epistle, he said in chapter 3, verse 2, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, see, so we know that he's thinking about it, he says, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then he goes on, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here is John. For all these decades, he's been doing exactly that. He's been purifying himself in this, in this expectation of the Lord's coming. Now, he's not the only New Testament writer to think like that. In fact, when you read Paul's epistles, there's a number of times when he refers to the Lord's soon coming and he expresses his own desire and expectation concerning that. Probably the clearest reference is in 2 Corinthians 5 
when he says that we have a house eternal in the heavens. And then he says this, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And then he's, he kind of clarifies what he means by that in verse 4. He says, well, not because we want to be unclothed. I mean, we don't have a little death wish here. We don't want to die. But further clothed. And the idea is this, that mortality may be swallowed up by life, by immortal life. And no doubt, he's thinking of the great mystery that the Lord already revealed to him that he talked about in his first letter to these people, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, when he said this, hey, I'm going to show you a mystery. In other words, this is something not yet revealed to the people of God, but now he's going to disclose it. He says, I'm going to show you a mystery. Here it is. He says, well, there's this whole generation of believers who will not die. We will not all sleep, he says, but we shall all be changed because there's going to be a moment in time. It's going to be announced by the blowing of a trumpet. And in the twinkling of an eye, he said, the whole generation of living believers at that time, well, they're going to be changed. So that's what the apostle is writing about now in his second letter when he says, we groan because we desire to be clothed when this mortality is swallowed up in immortality. I mean, Paul clearly lived with that expectation. And you know what? He wasn't the only one besides John thinking like that. At the end of the book of Hebrews, when we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, the author says, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then James, the Lord's half-brother, writes the same thing in chapter 5, where uh, he is encouraging suffering believers. Some of them are uh, dealing with exploitation from their employers. And James says to them, hey, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. He said that the first generation Christians who were being abused by their masters, hey, go ahead and be patient, folks, because the coming of the Lord is near. And then Peter, too, in his first epistle, written to suffering believers again, 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Now let me ask you, what were those first century believers clearly expecting? I mean, exactly what were those promises offering? And what about when the Lord said, I come quickly? But you see, the difficulty with that is, he didn't. And the fact that he didn't, and that it's been almost two full millennia since those statements were made, has actually given fuel to those who are intent on proving that the New Testament is the work of erroneous first century theological thinkers and not the very Word of God. I mean, it's clear that those people were writing from their own belief systems. And hey, they were just mistaken in some cases. For example, when they referred to the coming of Christ and their expectation that it might occur in their lifetime. And people who say things like that take the passages I'm giving you and actually use them as proof that the Scripture is in error. 
that it is just the work of men. But then you have others who do believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You have good, sound, conservative people. But they point to those passages and then they say to anybody who believes in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, they say, hey, hey, you're wrong. You're wrong to take that position because look, first century people thought that way as well. And look, it didn't happen. So clearly that's not what this is referring to. It must mean something else. And just to remind you, imminency is the belief that something can happen at any moment without any intervening event. In other words, it hangs over your head. It can fall at any time. So how can you believe in the imminency of Jesus' coming when in fact the first century people made statements like that and hey, it didn't happen? Well, I want to deal with that today and basically address the promise of our Lord in verses 7, 12, and 20 and just, just try to sort it all out so that we can be steady in our expectation. As the hymn writer once wrote, that it may be at morn when the day is awaking, or it may be at midday, it may be at twilight, it may be perchance that the blackness of midnight will burst into light in the blaze of His glory when Jesus receives His own. And all we're doing is crying out the chorus, O Lord Jesus, how long, how long? And we shout the glad song because we really are expecting His coming. But how can we take that position in light of the fact that it's been now nearly 2,000 years since these statements were made? Well, instead of just telling you this morning, I want to show you what Scripture says so you can see it for yourselves. And I want to begin by focusing for a moment on the word translated as quickly in verse 7. I am coming quickly. What does that mean? The first thing I want to look at today. I mean, maybe, maybe we just misunderstood what the word means. So what does that term actually refer to? Well, let me begin by pointing out that this term is used 13 times in the New Testament. Seven of them are in this book. And out of those seven, six of them refer to this event, the Lord's coming. So it isn't just that he says it three times in this chapter, but you have three times before this chapter where you find the same language. Now let me tell you, that word does have options. There are alternative meanings. And I want to show you by having you flip back to the Gospel of John chapter 11. John 11. And it won't be on the screen, so you might want to look at it. But this is the account, you remember, of uh, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But before he did that, he... Uh, had a word to Martha and to Mary. And when he spoke to Martha, in verse 28, he finished the conversation with her, and it says, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Right There's our term. Now look at verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly. Now that's a slightly different Greek term. And let me just pronounce the two. 
The term translated quickly in verse 29 is the Greek word taku. The word translated quickly in verse 31 is pronounced takeos. So they're very similar. They come from the same root. But what is meant by those two words in this particular context? That's the question. In verse 29, she arose quickly. In verse 31, the Jews saw Mary rose up quickly. Well, obviously, this is referring to her haste, right? In other words, this term could mean doing something speedily. She got up quickly with haste, speedily. However, if you turn over now to 1 Corinthians 4, Uh, The Apostle Paul here is writing to these people about the fact that he wants to visit them. And in verse 19, he assures them, but I will come to you, takeoth. That's the second of those terms in John 11. I will come to you, and here it's translated as shortly. I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. Now, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying, I'm going to come, and when I come, hey, it's going to be speedily. I'm going to come at great speed. Very fast is how I'm coming. I'll be running. I'll be in a chariot. Galloping on a horse. All right. Hold that thought. Go to Philippians. The last reference I want to look at. In Philippians 2.19 he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And in verse 24 he writes, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Same Greek words. Translated as quickly in John 11. Translated shortly here. Again, what's he saying? Is he saying, hey, I'm sending Timothy. I'm going to send him real fast. He's coming by express post. No. Obviously, he means the word that the translators have chosen here. And the idea isn't speedily. It is shortly. It's soon. There won't be a great deal of intervening time before I send Timothy to you. So those are the two options before us with this particular word. Those terms can refer to something that is done with great speed, or it can refer to something that will be done in the near future. You got that? Now, with that in mind, what do you think is the right understanding in the book of Revelation when the Lord assures His people six times that he's going to come taku or takeos. Is he saying, I'm going to come, and when I do, hey, don't blink because you'll miss it. It's going to be really, really fast. Or is he saying, I'm going to come shortly without a great deal of intervening time? Well, Christians historically have believed the second view. And that what they read in Paul's writings and in Hebrews and in James and in Peter and in John's epistle, in all of those references that I gave you, the first century Christians were taking these promises in the sense that there wasn't going to be a great deal of time in between our Lord's promise and His actual appearing. In other words, it's not that He would come swiftly as much as He would come shortly. He would come soon. And I say all of that to say, no, we are not misunderstanding what He meant when He said, I'm coming quickly. 
Now, I do want to point out that nowhere in the Old Testament is this ever said. These words for quickly do occur frequently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and they mean the same thing, but never once in the context of the Lord's coming. And this is in spite of the fact that there was a great deal in the Old Testament about the Lord's coming, both His first coming and His second coming. With reference to His first coming, you've got quite a bit on the nature of His coming, right? It's through the womb of a virgin. It's in Bethlehem. There's certain events about His life and His ministry that are predicted. All of those things are said, but it's never said to Old Testament people that coming will be soon. This is a New Testament kind of a statement. So that brings us then to this. If the Lord is really promising that His coming will be shortly, how then do you explain the 2,000 years of waiting to this point in time? Well, I want to answer that for you in two points. Number one, when our Lord was on the earth, He actually anticipated the possibility that some of His people would begin to think that He was delaying His coming. They would actually think to themselves, hey, my Lord is, is delaying His coming. He anticipated that possibility and He warned against it. Now, of course, the passage I'm referring to is in Matthew 24, which is a parable that the Lord gave about giving a stewardship to certain servants and then leaving them. But after a while, those servants were thinking that very thought. My Lord delays His coming. And as a result, <clears throat> the passage says they began to beat their fellow servants. and They began to live in drunkenness as if their master wasn't going to come for a long time. Well, our Lord is anticipating that false thinking. So I think we just need to recognize that this is happening even today. In other words, professing Christians will actually start to misuse each other in their marriages, in their work relationships, in a local church setting, in a Christian institution. They would, as it were, beat their fellow servants. Why? Well, because there's not going to be any accounting for this anytime soon. That's their thinking. In fact, I can put it to you in a very personal way like this. If, if you really thought that the Lord might come into the middle of your house tonight, how would you be treating your spouse? If we actually thought that the Lord might be returning tomorrow, it was in the calendar, it was, an, it was a known and shared event, how would we be striving to get along with Christian people today? Making up our differences treating each other kindly, with respect, forgiving, being forgiven, with a great deal of latitude. And how would we be acting with reference to the world? Would you spend the night before out clubbing or getting drunk or chasing an ungodly lifestyle if you knew that your Master, the Lord Jesus, was on the way? You see, this possibility that the Lord anticipated is very much alive and not well in Christian circles because the way Christians live today indicates their understanding that there won't be any accounting today 
won't be any accounting tomorrow or next month, probably not 2023, maybe sometime, maybe 2500 A.D., I don't know, a long time in the future, certainly not today. i got heaps of time to play with. Well, this attitude is something the Lord foresaw when it came to the time in between His first and second comings. Second thing I want to point out then is a passage in the New Testament that addresses this very tendency, and it goes on to explain the same issue that we are so confused about. It's in 2 Peter 3. So let me show you how this particular passage is designed to deal with this problem. So if you can turn to 2 Peter 3, while I fix my microphone, it's falling off. All right. Oh, not going to fix itself. Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's that little clip. It's got to get on. There we go. Let's try that. All right. Second Peter 3. I'll have to edit that out of the Zoom. In verse 3, uh, Peter talks there about the last days and scoffers coming. And in verse 4, these scoffers say things like this to Christians. You're looking at it? They say this, you know, where is the promise of His coming? And if you look at verse 9, there's a word there that really communicates the way people tend to think when they're asking that kind of a question because it appears to them as if the Lord's fulfillment of His promise is what? What does it say? It's slack. If you got my version. Uh... You see that? I mean, that's exactly there the problem that's being addressed. It's the thought that His coming isn't soon, but it's slack, or you probably have slow in another version. In fact, it's being delayed so long, it's giving people fuel for mocking. Well, this is exactly the issue that we're addressing today, and the fact that it comes from mockers in this passage does not preclude the same problem happening in the minds of believers because they're coming to the same conclusion. Yeah, the Lord's really slow about this. Now, what is the answer to that? Well, it's really a twofold answer. There's one part answer in verse 8 and the other part of the answer is in verse 9. So what I want to do is just allow God Himself to give us the answer. You shouldn't be leaving here this morning saying, well, that wasn't satisfactory. Because this is his response in answer to this issue. It's the only response that we need to hear. All right, let's just get that down. You know, things to us seem to indicate that he's slow. Well, verse 8, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with, with the Lord. Now, here's, here's what just happened with that statement. We were just lifted out of the realm of mockers out of the realm of some Christians thinking it's all too slow, we're now being lifted out of that line of thinking. We're now being taken up to the Lord's viewpoint. You see, with the Lord, from divine perspective, here's how it works with reference to time, and it's not at all like human beings look at time. But with the Lord who made those promises to begin with, one day 
is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, that statement, a thousand years as one day, is actually taken from an Old Testament passage. It's Psalm 90. So turn back there. Let's have a look at it. And this is quite significant because this is the oldest of the Psalms, as far as we know, authored by Moses. And it has to do with the eternality of God and the mortality of man. So it starts out by reflecting on God's eternality. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were ever brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then in verse 3, it turns to man's mortality. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. Return to dust there is the idea. In other words, the whole context is about time. It's contrasting it with eternality. So in that context, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. Now that's the verse that Peter is quoting. But you remember how he puts it? He puts it in this way, that a thousand years are as one day. But you can see here that the psalm is telling you what day. They're like yesterday. The one that, that just went by. Like that. Right? In fact, it's shorter than, than that with the Lord. Look at the next line. It's actually like a watch in the night. It's about three to four hours in length. Now, is that just poetic expression? Is that just beautiful imagery? Or is that really the case? Well, listen to it again. Don't let this one fact escape your notice in the face of mockers that a thousand years with the Lord who made those promises about His soon coming, it's like the time it took for yesterday to happen. Do you remember yesterday? It was a blink, it was gone, wasn't it? In fact, it, it's actually like the security guards watched last night. Just three to four hours long. Now, what's really amazing is what the first line says back in Second Peter because it doesn't even occur in Psalm 90. But here is where the Holy Spirit says that, you know what, it works the other way as well, because one day is like a thousand years. Now, does that mean that when a day is over, the Lord kind of says, oh, boy, that felt like a thousand years. That was a long day. Like, like mom says after he's had a day with the kids, I felt like a thousand years. No. Those two lines are placed back to back in order to communicate to us that God's view of time is not only different from ours, but from divine perspective, there really isn't time in the way that we understand it. I mean, a thousand years? Okay, that was like yesterday. And a day? Well, that's like a thousand years. In other words, it's all basically irrelevant when it comes to time from God's viewpoint. Now, we need to be just a little bit careful about this because God is timeless Himself in His being. Remember that? Psalm 90 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So He is timeless in His being. However, He does act within time. Because His actions occur at certain points in a succession of chronology. 
And a good example of that is Galatians 4.4 when it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So He acts within time. But if you're talking about His view of the whole history of creation time-wise, it's all one and the same to Him. Because he's already, He already sees the whole thing. He sees the end all the way back there from the beginning. In fact, He ordained the end. Uh, preachers often use a simple illustration here, which is the difference between watching a parade as someone who's on the street level, where you can see the bands, you can see the floats going by one at a time. It's the difference between that and being up there in a news helicopter, where you're looking down and you're seeing the whole thing at one glance. I mean, it isn't a succession of floats from that viewpoint but it's really the whole parade and it's all laid out there before you from beginning to end. Well, a timeline is all the same like that to God. Now, from divine viewpoint, think of the coming of Jesus Christ in the parade analogy. In the fullness of time, the Messiah came. That event is past. People waited thousands of years for that event to happen. All the way back to the promise to Eve. And remember, during that time, nobody said that His coming was soon. But He came. And there was the crucifixion and the resurrection. And these are central events in the history of the world. But now those uh, floats have also passed by. And then you have the ascension of this Messiah to the Father's right hand. And again, that float has gone by. The current float that is passing by is the gradual subjection of all things to Himself, one soul at a time in salvation. And when that is complete, the next Christological event is that He's coming again. That's the next float in the parade. So from that viewpoint, I come soon. And to us, it seems like a long time in waiting, but from God's viewpoint up there in the helicopter, as it were, it's very soon. I think that any parent whose kids have grown up can identify with this to some degree. You remember uh, you know, when the kids uh, were just born, they're very, very small, and you bring them into church, and people would say to you, hey, you really need to enjoy them at this stage because they just grow up so fast. Now, you know, you're holding them in your arms as a newborn. They're about the size of a, of a honeydew, right? A little watermelon. You can pick them up in one hand. I used to hold my son up like this. One hand with his bum in my palm. And it was really cute. And now you, you kind of thought to yourself, that's just an old person's opinion. What do they know? You, know? You, don't, you don't identify with it in the moment. But then you have another child. And maybe another one. And then the years go by. And the years go by. And morning to night, you're giving them your attention. And you're just loving on them and you love your family dynamic and it's this great responsibility to have, but something you really enjoy from day to day and year after year, but one day it's over. And then you look back and what do you say? Where did all the time go? Where did all the time go? And then you realize those old people were right. And from the standpoint of my life as a whole, and the passing of those years, that really great part of my life went by so fast, and you just want just a little bit more of those baby years back. Right? 
I think nearly every parent can identify with that. I know I do. Well, here's the eternal God. And with the Lord, from His viewpoint, this is fast. This is soon. But then verse 9 gives us a second answer from the Lord, which I've already alluded to. And I think this really is where it touches our hearts. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. In other words, you've got to accept God's answer about this, right? It's not slow in coming, He says, as some people count slackness or slowness, but He is long-suffering toward us. Someone says, hey, it's so slow in coming. No, wait. It's not slow, but there is some long-suffering being exercised. Why? Well, because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, just think about how slow God has been in the past to bring His judgment down, even after he has determined that he will do it. Think, for example, of the time he came to Noah and he told him a flood was coming and he instructed him on how to prepare for that. Even in spite of that inevitability, God said, you know what, nevertheless, I'm going to give people a century and a quarter of listening to your preaching as an opportunity to repent. 125 years. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think how long God suffered with that perverse generation of people. Think of His own people in the nation of Israel. Think of how many centuries elapsed from when He sent the prophets to tell them of impending judgment. And when He finally brought it down on them. God is slow because God is long-suffering with us. Now sometimes we don't have the Spirit of the Lord when it comes to the unsaved, do we? Well, more like James and John who saw the Samaritan village refuse to give the Lord a welcome. And you remember that they came to the Lord and they said, hey Lord, do these guys, they don't accept you. Should we just call down fire on them? Is that okay with you? And the Lord said, hey guys, you don't, that's not the right spirit to have. Well, the Lord's spirit about that village was long-suffering. And really, the whole church of Jesus Christ should not begrudge a single day that leads to even a single soul coming to Jesus Christ as much as we long to see Him return. You know, tomorrow, the universal church of Christ is going to get up in the morning and work by the sweat of our brow just like lost people. In some cases, we'll be existing in broken and weak bodies many of our brothers and sisters facing persecution for their Christian testimony. But you know what? They will do it. And they'll be content with it if it means that someone will be saved tomorrow. That's exactly what is going on with the waiting of the church for the Lord's coming. To return to the parade analogy, this is the float that's still going by. I've given this to you before, but the Apostle ends 1 Corinthians 16 with an Aramaic word. There's some Aramaic sprinkled throughout the Bible. It's transliterated in our Bible as Maranatha. But that word is really capable of two translations because what you have there is not a translation. It's what we call a transliteration. We've taken 
uh, the letters, the Aramaic letters, and it just substituted English letters so that it can be read in English. But if that word is pronounced in Aramaic, Maran Atha, it means our Lord comes or our Lord has come. Just before that, Paul says, if anyone doesn't love our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, Maran Atha, our Lord has come. Maybe that's what it says. But could also be pronounced as Maranatha. See the difference? And if it reads in that way, it is a cry of great anticipation in prayer. Our Lord, come! And all the church of Jesus Christ for all of these centuries has prayed in that way. So may we have the mind of God about this with an eye toward His soon coming but with a heart that longs to see the whole world come to repentance before He returns. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our great heart's cry that You would come. And though we do not know the hour, it may be today. And we pray, Lord, that You would be patient with us that you are long-suffering with those who do not know you. We pray that you would bring to a full harvest all those who will come to know the Savior. May we be a part of seeing this full harvest come in. At the same time, we, we pray that the Lord Jesus would come soon. We love you. We anticipate this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.